the Remarkable People podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life. Hello, friends. This is David Pasqualone with the Remarkable People podcast, episode 49, The Claire Chandler Story. This is another episode I was so excited to bring you. I had fun. I believe the guest had fun. We learned a lot. We laughed. We got serious. And like a lot of our episodes, it goes deep and wide. And the longer you listen, the better it gets. And while the title of the episode encompasses just some of the main focus, there's so much life lessons to be heard in this episode. There's so many things we can glean from and apply. Listen to the whole episode. Stick around for a special offer at the end. And you're going to see just truly how remarkable Claire is. So she's going to talk to us about HR. And I'm smiling. You'll see why she's going to talk about unleashing the superhero inside of us all, but not just the froofy, froofy stuff, the real stuff. She's going to talk about her battle with cancer and how she found her passion and now how she's given you a help. She's helping people find their passion. And that's part of the special offer at the end. So check out this episode of the Remarkable People podcast, the Claire Chandler story now. See you at the end. Hello, friends. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am so excited to bring you a ministry and organization, a healthcare solution that I not only believe in, but personally use Samaritan Ministries. Years ago, when the Unaffordable Care Act kicked in, my family and I were told by the government our rates were going to triple for half the coverage. That's unacceptable. So I told them they can take it and file it in that 15,000 page packet. So then it left us, what do we do? How do I provide my family with quality healthcare and insurance? Well, there's something called Samaritan. Samaritan is a healthcare co-op that's completely legal in the United States. It meets all the requirements of the Unaffordable Healthcare Act. And it helps people have a consistent amount that they're going to spend for their health care for their family. But that's it. So, for instance, my family and I pay X dollars per month. We can go to any doctors we want. If there's an issue, we pay the first $300 out of our pocket. And then after that, Samaritan covers the rest. If you go to one doctor, for the issue, or if you have to go to five doctors for the issue, Samaritan, it's not like deductible, 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 copay, percentages. Nope. That $300 in most cases will cover your first visit. And then when you're going to two or three specialists later, you're paid, you're done. You pay it out of pocket and they reimburse you for it. It's wonderful. My family and I, since 2012, have been with Samaritan And we've had more peace of mind, more security, better health care than we had before working for corporations. So in today's crazy environment in the United States, check out Samaritan. The other thing they do that's so wonderful 
is it's personal. Each month, you don't just get a bill. You personally send your payment to the other members. And then you write a little note of encouragement. And then if you have a need, you have a note of encouragement. They have prayer guides they put out. They have healthcare Christian newsletters. So you know what's going on in the world. And they even give you planners this month at Samaritan. It really is a great organization. There's so much to say about it, but just know this. David Pasquale and his family use Samaritan. We love it. We've had the best healthcare of our lives and we're continuing to use it. So thank you, Samaritan, for your great program. Thank you for all the Christians and members who use it. And thank you for checking it out. This is David Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. Check out Samaritan after this great episode. Hey, Claire, how are you today? I'm doing great, David. How are you? Uh, I'm doing remarkable. I'm so happy you're here. To our listeners, today, like we said in the intro, we have a very special guest, Claire Chandler. And Claire and I have been talking for a few months, and we finally got this meeting to happen, mostly because it's been my fault, right? We've had technology <laughs> issues, but Claire's been a champ, and she has a remarkable story, tons of value to share with you. So at this time, Claire... The audience doesn't want to hear me. They want to hear you. So let's start off in your childhood. Let's tell us your background. The format of the show is you kind of tell us your history. You talk about what you've faced and how you overcame it in practical steps. Then we'll transition to where you are today and where you're going. So after you bring me in the audience value, now we can bring you value. Sound good? That sounds outstanding. Thanks. Awesome. It's, it's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And with that accent, where are you from? <laughs> accent? I am a Jersey girl. I am born and raised in New Jersey. No, I have never met Snooki or the cast of the Jersey Shore, even though they they sometimes party about a mile away from me. Nice. Not That's probably year, a good thing. Sadly. It's, it's a very good thing. It's a very good yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. So did you grow up born and bred in New Jersey? Born, born and bred. I am from central Jersey originally. People outside of New Jersey don't quite get the whole North Jersey, South Jersey, Central <laughs> thing, but it is an ongoing debate. But yeah, so now I call home uh, a town in Monmouth County right along the coast. So I have the I have the uh, the blessing of being able to look out and see the ocean every day. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, and if somebody hasn't been to Jersey, it's gorgeous. There's areas in New Jersey that people make fun of and tease, but it's like any state. There's gorgeous areas. And there's not so gorgeous areas, but you're in the beautiful area of Jersey. Well, you know, and we get we get a bad rap, and here's why. Forget Jersey Shore and that whole, you know, reality uh, debacle. It's really because... Reality, comes, unreality. Well, exactly, I'm, exactly. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> but a lot of people only see New Jersey from the airport. And, you know, I, I don't know about where, where your Florida airports are placed, but, you know, Newark International is not in the, in the most scenic part of New Jersey. So if you've only ever come in and out of the airport and you've only really seen the, the lovely New Jersey Turnpike and the, you know, the, the urban grit like that the Sopranos show made famous, I invite you to come back and see New Jersey the way that I have experienced it throughout my life. You know, between the farmlands and the mountains and the beach, you, you really get the best of everything here. Yeah, it is a beautiful state. I mean, if I think your slogan's the garden state, and most people don't understand that, but take some time, <laughs> travel through New Jersey, get out of Newark, though. Newark is, a, I don't like Newark. 
<laughs> no offense to anybody listening in Newark, but it's rough. It's rough to get through well, the traffic. Well, but you got to go to the right part of Newark. So Newark by the airport is sort of a, a necessary evil we've got to live with. But let me tell you, if you are a fan in any way of Spanish or Portuguese cuisine, Newark, there's a district of Newark called the Ironbound, and they are legendary for just amazing Spanish and Portuguese restaurants so don't don't count out newark just yet but just you know you gotta you gotta venture beyond uh terminal c yep and that's true in portuguese food i grew up in my whole town was portuguese italian irish pretty much mainly i mean you had a whole mix but those were the three main and uh the portuguese picnics in milford mass and the all in new england people fly in and i was like literally a mile from my house amazing food but awesome let's get back to your history so tell us <laughs> How did Claire begin? How did God bring you into the world? What was your background and upbringing like? Oh, man, that, that's kind of a, uh, a broad question to start with, but I love this. So I, I grew up in New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey. I was actually born in, in a hospital in uh, downtown Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is not quite, quite different from, uh, from Newark. But I grew up in a town called Plainfield, which is one of the, the, the bigger cities in New Jersey, but grew up sort of on the, the outskirts of downtown. So really kind of on the, on the suburban side. I am the, the younger of, of two kids, was raised in a very strictly adherent Roman Catholic family. So went to Catholic school from kindergarten, literally through undergraduate college, went to a Jesuit school up in, in Connecticut. So so religion, Catholicism, faith, you know, have, have always been such a, a huge part of my life, my upbringing, my perspective, my, my worldview, my gut check, you know, all that, all that sort of thing. So, so I have a, I, I have a big brother. He's, uh, he's two years older than me. I've always looked up to him and I was always the, uh, the stereotypical uh, tag along baby sister you know, nice. always wanted to be around my big brother. Right. And, uh, you know, and my, and my parents and I, and I realize how blessed I am that my parents are not only still around, but they are still quite happily married. They've been married over 50 years now. So, you know, they, they really kind of set a very high bar for both my brother and myself in terms of what positive relationships you know, and, and, and hard work and putting in the effort to maintain and communicate and all of that. But what that really looks like. So yeah. And that's it's a, it's so a little important. bit of my background. Yeah. 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 And the, important. After your relationship with God, your relationship with each other. So send me a picture of your parents. We'll put in the show notes, man. They deserve some props for 50 oh, years. I will absolutely do that. I'll absolutely do that. We just won't tell them. My mom gets embarrassed, but she's, you know, they're, they're just such beautiful people. So I will absolutely do that. All right, we'll do it. And then you can tell them afterwards. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. So you're growing up, you got your brother, you got good, solid family. Nobody's perfect, but at the same time, you got a good foundation. You're going through CCD, right? Catechism, killing it after school. It didn't We're even need CCD. My friend, I was Catholic school, my whole upbringing. So I oh. had, I had the, the, the nuns of St. Bernard school in Plainfield. And then I had the, uh, the, the, nuns, uh, the Dominican uh, sisters in uh, Bishop Bar, St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Edison, New Jersey. And then I had the Jesuits at Fairfield University in Connecticut. So when, when I tell you religion was a 
sort of the, you know, the, the, the center line of my life, you know, from, from birth. Yeah. I'm not kidding. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I, it, that is definitely growing up in new England. If you're from there's 76 countries that have listened to our podcast and all over our North America, but in new England, there's such a different, just architecture of life up there. And I remember going to school and then a lot, a lot of people would go to CCD afterwards or, but if you went to yep. Catholic school, you didn't have to, you just went to school and it was included in the curriculum. So if you don't know what we're talking about, you can reach out to me <laughs> or Claire and we'll, we'll explain it later, but all right. So, so go on. So you're growing up. What was your, like, did you always feel you knew where you were heading in life? Was it a kind of experiment? Enjoy the journey. What was your background like there? Yeah. Such a great question. I, I never really had a, a plan. It was really more of a, you know, just, just sort of a journey, you know, when, when you grow up in a very, I'm going to say strict, but I don't mean it like, oh my gosh, my parents were these like scary people or anything. But when you grow up in a strict sort of Catholic household, right, where, you know, this direct quote from my mom, this family goes to church, like every weekend, there is no, there's no debate, there's no, I don't care that you're, you know, as you get older, you go out partying with your friends, you know, you're too tired on Sunday morning, we're, we're going to church as a family. You know, we had family dinner every night, like that was really, really important, regardless of, you know, what other obligations we had whether it was after school programs or sports or, you know, hanging out with friends. And, you know, when, when you grew, so I'm a child of the seventies and, you know, in, in early eighties, I think eighties was the best decade of music hands down. So, you know, fight me on that if you want, but, uh, you know, my, (laughs) my, my, my son who's 18 and my wife would stand behind you. My daughter and I might have a different opinion. All right. I mean, you know, as I've, as I've grown older, I've gotten an appreciation for some other decades of music, but like when I'm, when I'm really sort of being nostalgic and looking for, you know, what's the decade that sort of defined my really coming into my own and, and my own goofy personality, the eighties the just sort of sum it up. Right. Yeah, um, it does. And yet, MTV, yeah. I mean, do you remember MTV oh, yeah. when it came out? No, even the people making the videos didn't know what they were doing. It was all experimental, all crazy. It was fun. I, you know, I remember, I mean, seriously, like re- I remember when MTV first hit the airwaves and my friends and I, that I grew up with all on the same street in Plainfield, you know, that was so like amazing to us that those, the artists that we had heard, right. And we were, you know, buying up 45s and maybe if we were, you know, really saved up an allowance or, or, you know, did enough chores to earn some money to go and buy like a full size album, but it was so cool when MTV came out and it was like, oh my gosh, like these are the people that are like, you know, they're, they're the, they're the faces and they're the, you know, the, the voices and the dancing behind all that music that we've been listening to for years. So yeah, it was, it was really cool, but it was, you know, it was rare for us to be inside, you know, like as a, as a kid growing up in the seventies and the eighties, like we didn't have, I was, I was the last on the block to get like Atari you know, to get cable, to get a phone in my room. Like, you know, I was not that we were behind the times, but we were just like, you know, we weren't, we weren't the cutting edge family on the block. Right. But like, even before that, like we weren't sitting inside playing Atari or, or, you know, Commodore 64 or any of that stuff. When we were kids, we were out until the streetlights came on. And as soon as the streetlights came on, we were booking it back to our houses because we knew we were going to be late for dinner. So like, you know, all this sort of, uh, 
And I, I can't believe I'm at the point where I'm going, these kids today, but you know, kids today who are just sort of all about the, the Game Boy and the Xbox and the Call of Duty and, and stuff, man, like pick your heads up out of your, out of your little foxholes and go outside. You're, you're missing a ton of experiences. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's just such a weird dynamic of the world now, because when we were kids, we literally would go out, especially in the summer till, I mean, we'd stay out till it was late and the sun was down. And when that happened, it was the best because we played hide and go seek and we were yep. running through everybody's yards and we were hiding. If you do that today, you'll be kidnapped and raped. So it's, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. really weird. I don't mean it's to like, laugh at that, but yeah, you're right. No, no, you're it's right. a different world. Yeah. There's just so much, so many, there's a greater population and there's a greater dysfunction. There's a lack of morality and there's a bunch of psychos out there. And to be yeah. honest, my personal opinion is we don't have strong enough consequences in the laws. So these people just keep breeding and thriving. Yeah. So long story short, I agree with you completely. Kids need to go outside and play. But a yeah. lot of times you know, they can't. And, well, and it's interesting you say that because I, you know, I had a conversation not too long ago. You know, I, I can remember growing up, there was like that one guy who was sort of in our neighborhood that always seemed a little bit off, right? And like he was a little bit older. He wasn't quite an adult, but he wasn't a kid. And like, but you could narrow it down to one person. And like, if I look back, and I think, you know, there, there were scary people when we grew up, there were people that were, you know, I mean, like, we know there were kids who were abducted, there were, you know, there were tragedies that happened. But I think to your point, part of where we are now in the world is, yes, there's not just a, a degradation of morality, and of ethical choices. But because there is social media and there's internet and there are so many ways to learn from others, you know, you're, you're able to spread a positive message a lot more globally, but you're also able to learn depravity at a much more accelerated level. And I think that's, you know, what we're up against. Yeah. It's a weird world. And a lot of times people make jokes and they, you know, I, I always believe whatever you saw on TV in the eighties that was outrageous became normal in the nineties. Then yeah. what was on in the nineties became normal in the two thousands. So whatever's the most obscene thing we see today, five to 10 years, it's going to be sadly more normal. So yeah. I think that's a lot of like what you said with the deprivation, not deprivation, but with just the morality level dropping, I think people are accepting more and it's just getting out of control. But yeah. to tie this all up, I don't want to derail here. For us, <laughs> we need to stay morally pure. We need to do the right thing, lead by example. And for you now, you're living, thank the Lord, in a great childhood. You have that kind of neighborhood where you can go play day and night. How did that shape you into who you are today? In a couple of ways, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a, like I said, I mean, a, a wholesome family and yeah, to your, to your earlier point, we were by no means perfect, you know, but it, it, it truly does shape you. And I grew up with a, with a core of childhood friends with whom I am still close. And, you know, like that's, that's my, that's my posse. You know what I mean? Like we call ourselves the A-team and other people call us the A-team. Cause it's like, that's, that's just our group. Nice. Yeah. And like, and it's, it, you know, part of it is, is circumstance, right? Part of it's environment. It's like, I didn't have any choice what street my parents chose to buy a house and raise their kids on. 
but you know, I was blessed with the fact that it was chock full of kids who were wholesome too. And, and, you know, not everybody came from, you know, two parent happy marriage families, but we all bonded together over the fact of, you know, having this shared environment in which we grew up and having this shared sort of solidarity that even if, you know, our, our family life was going through a rough patch, whether it was a divorce, a death in the family, uh, you know, an injury, an illness, what have you, we had our, our club, our clique, our, you know, our, our gang, right? And I see gang very tongue in cheek, because if you saw how wholesome this, this group of us, you know, were and, and are, and I could send you a picture of that too. I mean, we've all been in each other's weddings and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's like, but all of that formed me, right? And all of that sort of, you know, definitely shaped my worldview and, you know, religion and faith and God were never tangential to me. They were never something that I just sort of thought about on Sunday mornings, you know, and, and again, you know, as a true Catholic, I'm the first to tell you I'm an absolute sinner and I am, you know, completely flawed and completely, you know, vulnerable to, you know, to, to temptations and earth. And are there things that I've done in the past that I'm not proud of? 100%. Do I still beat myself up over those things? 100%, right? And I think part of what I've come to, to understand and embrace over time is you, you really have to kind of get disciplined about yourself too. And I, and I don't mean just, you know, in terms of, of being able to resist poor choices, but in terms of looking back over the mistakes that you've made and continue to carry with you the lessons from those mistakes and let go of everything that doesn't serve you and doesn't serve God. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And I think what you brought up too is your group, your A-team, you guys were in each other's lives and nobody had a perfect family. You know, like I'm sure all people whose parents had drug problems or alcohol problems or who went through a divorce. But back then it just seemed like everybody loved each other and accepted each other. And you could tease each other about your faults, but you were there for each other. Do you, do you feel that way too? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it, they are your childhood friends. You know, they say your cousins are really your first friends outside of your family. And, and that's, and that's true as well. But those childhood friends that I grew up with have always been an extension of my family. You know, we, we love each other. We've, you know, gotten into arguments, certainly, you know, it's not always, you know, just sort of playing uh, spud in the street and ghosts in the graveyard when the, you know, when the streetlights come on, you know, sometimes it's, it's fighting over, over, you know, we like the same boy or, you know, whatever it, whatever it might've been, but it's one of those things that's sort of that unwritten rule of families, right? It's like, I can fight with my brother. I can fight with my friends, but if you come in to our block and you try to criticize or go after one of our, you know, one of our, our, our gang, our family, you're going to come up against a group of us because, you know, we can criticize each other. We can fight with each other, but how dare you if you try it. Right. Yeah, no, but I think, man, there's something to that. And I think our society today is removing a lot of it and almost teaching us that's wrong, but that just camaraderie and that almost that basically you're like family, even though you're not blood, 
that loyalty, I think we're losing a lot of it in today's culture. And with that, we lose a lot of character. I mean, yeah. and hearing how you grew up and seeing where you landed and so many people like, like you, you know, there's just something to it that I'm, I maybe can't explain right, put my finger on it, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, if you didn't have that group and that loyalty, and like you said, you could literally be the people at the top of the hill and the people at the bottom of the hill were like a whole group of different group of kids. And you were like, don't mess with us. Like, we're not yeah. going to trump you. You don't hurt us, but don't hurt Mickey. You hurt Mickey. You're screwed. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, oh, please. I mean, we, so I grew up on a street in, in Plainfield called Oxford Avenue and right next door was Cambridge Avenue. It ran parallel. I guess they were into, you know, snooty English university names or whatever. And like, there were a bunch of kids on that next block too. And some of them went to the same grammar school that I did. And, you know, some of them were, were, you know, became friends, but there was this huge street rivalry, right? So it was like, I can remember times we'd have kickball tournaments, you know, it was the Oxford kids versus the Cambridge kids. And it was like this big, this big sort of thing, but it wasn't like, you know, a scene from the outsiders or West side story where we met at the park down the road and had a rumble. Like, you know, our, our biggest rivalry was kickball. You know what I mean? But like, we never, we never thought to say, you know, let's, let's pick teams and you could have people from, from Cambridge on the Oxford team. No, no, no. Like that's, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> and I want to, and I want to dive into what you just said, because I think it's so true. Like, I think it, it's human nature to want to be part of a tribe, right? Like it goes back to our tribal days. And I look at my family and I look at my extended family and I look at my core childhood friends and even other friends that I've built up really amazing relationships with, you know, all throughout my life. And they're part of my tribe. And I think, you know, you're, you're hitting upon something that is, that is so true. You know, I fall prey to social media as much as, as anybody. I do not engage in the, in the political debates at all, but I do along with social media, I do, you know, connect and reconnect with people. But I think that the proliferation of social media and remote means of communication had given us this false sense that these tribes are real, right? The social media, the internet, all of that has given us the ability to broaden our tribes, to build up our tribes, to build up a following, to build up a whole bunch of connections but deep down at the end of the day, you can probably count on one hand the number of people who would literally lie down in traffic for you. And the, the people that I can list without question, who if I call them right now and said, I need you, would drop everything for me, no questions asked, doesn't matter what they're involved in, and they would be by my side. How many of your social media connections could you actually say that about? And I think it, you know, it does come back to we are so innately interested in belonging to a tribe and we gravitate towards social media and those types of connections and followings to, to try to replace some of that in, in modern society. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Claire, totally. And if you're listening from anywhere in the world, when we use the term tribe, we're not talking about a native primitive group. We're talking about like community, tribe, group. I'm like, kind of like West, we have the remarkable people community. It's all over the world, but everybody has something in common. So the tribe is an Americanized term that we use. So just to make that clear for the other countries out there. Okay. So now, Claire, you're growing up. You love your big brother. You love your parents. You go through. 
going from that transition from high school to college, what's that look like for you? So college is really where I tapped into my unique personality. And what I mean by that is, you know, high school was, it was a Catholic high school, as I said, and it was still, you know, we we were all in uniforms and, you know, those are, those are named that way for a reason, right? Because we are supposed to follow a uniform code of conduct and code of dress and, you know, live, live to meet a uniform set of expectations. And that's all important because in your formative years, when you're going through a, a school like that, that is part of the, the training, right? Is to give you some structure and to help you to understand the rules so that when you go out on your own, whether it's college or beyond, you have been given some measure of or some barometer for right and wrong, good and bad, what works, what doesn't, and what people expect of you, right? So that then you can kind of venture out. So high school you know, I was still very much a a conformist and I was raised that way. Right. And I don't mean conformist as in here, drink this Kool-Aid because everybody else is drinking the Kool-Aid. But what I mean by that is I, you know, I have always had a very high respect for the, the rules and authority figures and, you know, and all of that. And so in high school, I, you know, was, was kind of, how do I want to say it? not as laid back as I discovered I could be in, in college, right? I was very self-conscious. To say I had low self-esteem, I don't mean it in a way that I battled depression or anything like that, but I, you know, definitely went through, and I think a lot of teenage girls go through this, you go through that ugly duckling phase, right? That when you're growing up, and, and I know that teenage boys go through the same thing, you know, whether it's because you start to get pimples or you start to grow and you, you know, you, you, I mean, my, I had a growth spurt. I think when I graduated St. Bernard's Grammar School and graduated eighth grade, I was the third shortest kid in the class. Well, by the time I graduated high school, I was a third tallest. And so when you go through that kind of a growth spurt, you know, you, you, I mean, physically and literally look at the world a little bit differently, right? And people look at you a little bit differently. And I was your stereotypical gawky teenager who was all sort of limbs and very skinny and, you know, had all this sort of energy, but didn't quite know how to channel it. So then I get into college and it's literally the first time that I get to make my own rules and I can come to my own conclusions about what is right for me and what is not right. When you grow up where you go to Catholic school your entire life, you have parents who are deeply, deeply involved in your upbringing, your schooling, you know, they know who your friends are, they know where you're going at night, you know, and and all of a sudden you go to college and yes, it's a Jesuit school, but you don't have Jesuits roaming the dorm room and making sure you go to bed at a reasonable hour or that you go to every class, right? So it was the first time really that the training wheels were off and the restrictions about what time I had to get up or where I needed to be or who I needed to sit with or what I needed to learn, how I was going to apply what I learned. Those rules were now completely up to me to write. And freshman year, that was scary, right? Because when you go from wearing a uniform 
and being told a very clear set of expectations about, you know, what to do and where to be and what to eat and how to think, basically, to you get to make all those decisions on your own. It's empowering, it's exhilarating, and it's really, really scary. And so it was, you know, it was through that sort of, I hate to use the term baptism by fire, but it was a little bit of that, right? Because now all of a sudden I'm thrown in with, you know, a bunch of other kids who didn't all have the same upbringing that I did, but a lot of them were very similar. We're going to a Jesuit college, which meant a lot of us had come from Catholic high schools. You know, a lot of us uh, came from, so I went to school in, in Connecticut. There were, you know, a lot of people from the East Coast, mostly from New England. And there were a couple of outliers, you know, from, from California, the West Coast and the Midwest, but largely it was a lot of people who had somewhat similar upbringings to me. And we were all sort of thrown into this social experiment of now you have to go get a degree to figure out what that is uh, going to, you know, focus on for you. You have to figure out and navigate the same sort of social constructs that you did in high school, right? In terms of who your friends were going to be, right? Who your, your core community was going to be and really start to think about what are the criteria for who you let in, you know, at a, at a deeply personal level and who you don't. And so, you know, at least for me, that first year of college was hugely transformative because I learned you know, through a little bit of trial and error and through a little bit of, you know, making great friendships with people that, you know, there was a lot of mutual love and, and, and trust and respect. I discovered my, my voice. I discovered that I can, I can be Claire at a 10, which meant that I could be, you know, really energetic and a bit sarcastic and quite often goofy you know, and, and still also be intellectually curious and get really good grades and be accepted because I wasn't trying to fit a uniform. I was more and more expressing who I really was, what I believed and what I wanted to learn more about. Now to expand on that, this could be like the first real, you've already given so much information that we can learn from, but if we were to reverse engineer and break down this concept of discovering your voice did it just happen organically during the journey for you or did you make any practical steps and put in effort to find that voice it was a little bit of both so i would say you know i i am a lifelong introvert i was a very shy kid so you know if 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 you were part of my community you know, you were part of my inner circle of friends, you knew everything about me and you knew, you know, what I loved and what I feared. But if you were on the outside of that, you had to, you had to get over some walls first. Right. And I was, and I was shy and I was introverted. And I remember the, the very first night in the dorm freshman year, I was, you know, finally kind of sitting down after all of the, the, the commotion of moving in and saying goodbye to the parents and you know, going to some orientation sessions and all that kind of stuff, really sitting down with my new roommate who back then you didn't, you didn't know before you went in, like now there's like a match.com sort of a, a setup where you, where you literally shop for who your, your college roommate is going to be. 
you know, right? So for us, like we were just randomly collided together. And so it was like, it was the evening and we were finally sitting down and, and kind of exchanging stories, you know, where, where'd you grow up and what was that like? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I remember distinctly these uh, two people. And I, and I know exactly they were from Natick Mass. So they had the, the full blown sort of Boston accent and they were walking down the hall and they were also freshmen. They were going door to door. I Go ahead, you're going to call me out about Natick? There oh, I love Natick. I grew, I grew up in Milford 25 minutes All right, away, so, but I worked so in Natick. <laughs> yep, I know Natick very well, very well. So, so this this was kind of this formative thing, right, that I, that I still remember to this day, that the very first night I was there on campus and finally starting to have this, this exploratory conversation with this person I was going to live with in a very tiny dorm room. And these two people come walking by, and they're also freshmen, and they knew each other because they had gone to the same high school. But they were literally walking around and introducing themselves to everybody else on the floor. And I was amazed at their bravery because here was this introvert who, when we were loading up the car to bring me up to college, I said to my parents, if there is not enough room in the car with all of my stuff, I will happily stay home. I was scared to death to go away, right? Um, right. So like to see these two people kind of boldly just knocking on doors and introducing themselves on the very first day of freshman year of college just amazed me. And I thought I could never be that bold. And so, you know, fast forward from, from there and, and just sort of, it was through observing people like that Go, you know, going to class and, and, and starting to form friendships between my roommate and the other people in the dorm and the other people I interacted with, you know, in class and outside of class and intramural sports and all this stuff. I started to, I guess, serendipitously, but really kind of by accident, you know, come out of my shell a bit, a bit. But the other piece to your question, you know, what I did more intentionally was I joined the school newspaper. And for a time I had this fantasy that I was going to be a journalist when I, you know, when I got out of school. But it only took my my first intro to journalism class to 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 dispel that myth. He literally took the first 2 hours um, that we spent together writing down the very dismal salaries that you could expect if you wanted to become a journalist, let alone actually make a career out of it, let alone be be any good at it. And it wasn't all about the money by any stretch, but they were such abysmal starting salaries, if you were even lucky enough to get a job, that I thought, okay, surely I can take some journalism courses and do something else with that. And so I joined the newspaper as a freshman, you know, and did a lot of uh, sort of paying my dues and grunt work on the, on the paper. And by senior year, I was the editor-in-chief. And junior year and senior year, I was also a columnist. And so... I, you know, I, I really, again, I was never political. So my columns were never about, you know, whoever was running for president or governor or mayor or, you know, the, the, the students governing association or anything like that. It was largely a humor column. And I intentionally went in that direction, you know, where I really found my voice from a somewhat from a creative writing standpoint, but from a nonfiction humorous writing standpoint. I wrote about what I experienced. I wrote about what I saw. I wrote about what I learned, all with a humorous spin on it. And that really, that sort of intentional choice 
to go in that direction, to put my, my writing passion, you know, into that sort of a channel where I could also express my goofy personality really unlocked emotional doors for me because it really let me play to my full personality. Yeah, that's fantastic. So when you were progressing through from the introvert and you were like, you know, seeing and adjusting and taking bits and pieces from other people's lives, you've seen and integrating it into your own. How long would you say that that really took you? Was it instant overnight or did it take a while? It took a while. It definitely took a while. You know, and, and if I had it to do over, it would probably still take just about the same amount of time, maybe a little bit less because it's not, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you can go from introvert to fully discovering your voice, embracing your voice and, and laying it bare to the world overnight. You know, so there, there were probably some, some ramps I could have flattened to some degree in that regard, but really kind of getting to the point where I could figure out what that voice was, whether I had something to say of value, right? And then there is such a vulnerable, it's such a vulnerable thing to, to write for publication, right? Even if it's a student newspaper, these are your peers. These are people that, you know, their opinion, their validation of you matters, especially when we're, when we're kids and we're, you know, sort of coming into our own and not quite adults yet, but we're on the verge and we're expected to some degree to act like adults and make decisions like adults. Right. So, yeah, it's, uh, it really was that whole experience was transformative. I mean, you know, everybody said, oh, college is going to be the best four years of your life. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed college in every aspect of it. I mean, the, the, the intellectual challenge of it, the social challenge of it, you know, the, the, the freedom of it, the independence, the responsibility, all of that. But I think in particular, it's because throughout the course of those four years, I really learned a lot about myself and who I was, who I wasn't, who I wanted to be. And, you know, a start of a glimpse of how I might get there. And yeah. And for the listener, when you're listening to this, what Claire's saying is change takes time. Don't get discouraged. Don't think, Oh, I'm, I'm horrible. I'm terrible. I can't even do that. Right. That's live from the Satan. Just keep doing your best. Keep growing. And change, just like in Claire's life, takes time. And, and so. you know what? Let me tell you, there, there, are, there are still times now when, you know, I mean, I, I continue to make mistakes, right? We're human. We're, we're flawed. This is how we grow. This is how we learn. And I still find myself at times going, oh, my gosh, that was so stupid. Oh, my gosh, that was so dumb. I can't believe I did that. What's wrong with me? I'm never going to, you know, get to this place or this, you know, this level. That, that self-doubt is, I don't want to say it's always going to be part of your life, but there's, there's always that sort of whisper, right? In your, in your ear about what you can't do, or you can't be, or you can't rise above. And it's really a matter of what you do with that, how you respond to that. You can embrace it and have that become your authentic voice, which is the last thing you want to do. You can use it to 
you know, be a victim and curl up in a corner and say, well, that voice is right. And therefore I can't get past where I am. Or you can look at that much more introspectively and say, well, why am I thinking that about myself? Or, or why is that voice coming up? Or why did I stumble there? And what can I learn from it so I don't repeat the same mistake and so that I get stronger? We're always going to trip and fall. We are always going to you know, do things that in retrospect were maybe not the best choices or were not done perfectly, right? Because perfection is not really... It's not really our right to define, I guess, is really what I should say about that, right? But we, we are uniquely, beautifully flawed as human beings. And it's not about using those as bricks that we put on top of ourselves to keep us from rising. It's reminders that we always have an opportunity to do better. We always have an opportunity to do better and to learn from our mistakes and the mistakes of people around us. Yeah, that's well said, well said. If you were to look at your life now, from childhood to where you are at college, at this moment in the story, is there anything else that we missed or skipped before we transition from college to where you're going? Um, probably not. I mean, I'm sure some other things are going to come up that, that are going to make me, you know, draw, draw from that well again. But no, I mean, I think, I think we've hit upon some of the sort of transformational milestones, if you will. No, absolutely. I just want to make sure you're yeah. very well thought out and I don't want to derail you. No, 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 not at all. Any major things. So not at all. You're in college and you're moving forward. You're finding your voice. Where does a transition happen and how from there to adulthood, quote unquote? Yeah. Gosh, that took a long time too, right? You, you graduate. When I graduated, I was 22 years old, and uh, I had a, I had a fresh degree. I had uh, some some great memories. I had you know friendships that had been formed throughout those four years that I continue today. And I had not really the first clue what kind of career I was going to go into. And I I majored in English. I know that's really astounding to major in your native language, but I majored in English. <laughs> hey, actually, <laughs> right? I do want to point out one more thing. Yeah. In New England, <laughs> did you feel like in New England, one of the first questions everybody asks you is where are you from? Meaning what's your heritage? Yep. And then when you're a kid, the next question they ask you is, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? Did you have that experience too? I mean, that's how yeah. I was. Everybody who I met, it's like, oh, where are you from? You're Italian, Pasquale? Oh, no, what, you know, they joke around, yeah, right. are you Irish? But they knew you were Italian. And then they're like, what are you going to do with your life? So yeah. I always felt like, holy crap, how do I, I'm five. What do I do? I don't know. Yeah. Like, did you feel that extra you know, pressure? Or was that not where you were in New Jersey? Not really in college. I mean, we, I, I definitely had that in, in grammar school, you know, in, in, in growing up. And it's funny because the, the, you know, the first time we ever had one of those, writing assignments, you know, you're in the, you're in the lower grades, you're starting to not just write your letters, but actually write stories. Right. And, you know, I, I, I have these, like, I have long-term memory. It's a short-term memory that starts to go. Right. But the, the long-term memory, second, third grade, whatever it was, you had to write a story about what you wanted to be when you grew up. And 
I distinctly remember that I said I wanted to be a bus driver. Now, really no idea what motivated that. I, I did not take the bus to school in grammar school because my mom was a teacher there. Now, some people say, oh, well, that means that you got, you know, a special treatment and favor treatment. Yeah, I got special treatment. I couldn't dare get in trouble because my mom would find out before I even found out that I had to go stand on the, you know, on the lunch line or stand, you know, wherever. So yeah, special treatment was not what you, what you thought it was. Right. But, you know, so, so I don't know. So I never, I never got to ride the bus. So I think from the outside looking in, it always seemed like a very exotic experience to me. And it was like, well, that's kind of cool. You get to hang around kids all day and you get to drive this big vehicle. Like, and that's gotta be something I I guess. I don't remember why I wanted to be a bus driver. I just distinctly remember that for a time I wanted to be a bus driver. <clears throat> and then for a while, of course, you know, you, you grow up the, the daughter of a teacher, you want to be a teacher. And so that kind of stayed with me, you know, for a while, you know, that, that educate, you know, I mean, I was, I was raised to really value education and, you know, I was, I was a very good student. I was extremely diligent. I was very bright. I was, you know, very book smart and, you know, education was always also part of my up, upbringing. Right. I, I would say if, if religion was one of the cornerstones, education was another one, you know, and of course the, the, the importance of family, but you never really sat down and talked about the importance of family. You just sort of got it because that's how you lived. So, you know, growing up as I got older, I never really, like in high school, I guess it came up, but I was, you know, the, I was involved in the, in the school newspaper then too. So I think people just sort of naturally assumed I was going to go into, into writing or journalism or something. And then when I got to college, it wasn't about what do you want to be when you grow up? It was really about rather than trying to help you narrow that down was to broaden your, your focus. Right. I mean, the, the, the value of a liberal arts college. And I know liberal gets such a bad rap that you say, oh, you went to a liberal arts college. That must mean you're a liberal. No, that's not what it means. What it means yeah. is, right? Like how many people say that? But anyway, we won't go there. No, um, it's even like, I don't want to get into politics. No. Even like when people are Democrat 40 years ago and a Democrat today, it's a different world. And it's, a, it's a completely different definition and, and worldview that has evolved or, or devolved depending on your take. But again, we won't go there. Yeah. But like liberal, <laughs> if you give liberally, that's a good thing, but people right. just pigeonhole it into a, a bag of negative now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm tracking yeah. with you and hopefully as a listener, you're tracking with us too. All yeah. right. So keep going. So you're in college, you're f- with the newspaper, you're growing and developing. And then where does that take you? So when I, when I finished college, I had a job offer to go work for a, a new national college magazine. And they were based in New York City. And they had hired me to literally fly me around the country to visit different college campuses and to write about the experience. If ever there were a dream job for somebody who loved college, now, granted, this was the little shy girl who offered to stay home, right, the first day of freshman year, and was amazed by these two real brave, you know, brave heart types who walked around door to door to introduce themselves. Fast forward to, you know, by the end, it was like, I didn't want to leave. I was having such a good time and learning so much and loving the people that I was with and all of that. 
and really, you know, sort of embracing the, the, the goofy uniqueness that was me. And so this was really a, a dream job that somebody's going to pay me to go visit and, and basically repeat college, but all the social aspects of college and not have to worry about grades. Um, Sounds like a good deal that most people would fight for. Let me tell you, that was like, it, I, I could not have scripted a better job opportunity out of college. Well, it never materialized. I got hired, I got the offer, and then they kept putting it off because, like I said, this was a new college magazine. And long story short, they were never able to pull together the funding to make it a reality. And I don't, you know, I don't look back at that and go, oh, what could have been? But I do look back at that and say, you know, what are what are the aspects of that that I that I enjoyed? And it was the opportunity to continue that experience of interacting with people on a social level and writing about their experiences and sharing that with the world. And this concept of interacting on a social level for, again, somebody who started out as a freshman, very shy, very introverted, you know, really, really kind of underscored that while I am still an introvert, um, you know, there are, you know, deeply energizing things about what I was going to be doing through that job and what I do now, which is interacting with other people and helping them to achieve a higher level experience than perhaps where they are, right? And so, so that, that job didn't materialize. You asked me before, you know, did I, did I have a plan or, or did I just sort of open myself up to the journey? I decided once that fell through that, yes, of course I needed a job and I got, you know, a, a series of temp jobs. And then I ultimately, uh, the fall of the year that I graduated, started work full-time for an environmental company. And then it turned out I spent the next close to 20 years in that industry in two different companies. So, which is also kind of unheard of, you know, to spend close to 20 years and only work in two different companies, you know, especially as, as we sort of fast forward, it's just really not done anymore. Right. But I kind of, it, it wasn't an industry that I gravitated toward. That first job was the opportunity that became available that lined up with what I felt I could do. And I enjoyed it and I stayed there for four years. And then I worked for close to 15 years with a, with a larger global energy and environmental company and had the good fortune to, because I was not pigeonholed and nothing against accountants, but I didn't get an accounting degree, right? So when you get an accounting degree, your, your career opportunities, your career avenues are pretty narrow, right? They're not limited, but they're, but they're much more narrowly focused. As a, as a graduate of a liberal, liberal arts college with an English degree, those avenues were a lot broader to me. So I just remained open to, you know, not, not trying to narrowly focus what company or what industry I wanted to work in, but just really look for opportunities where what they needed was within a skill set that I could provide. And that really kind of sums up where I am now too, although it's, it's, it's a bit broader and it's a bit more, you know, I feel like it's at a higher level now, certainly than when I started at 22, but that same philosophy applies, right? It's, it's, it's trying to find that balance and that chemistry between a need that is out there in the world and, you know, the gifts that you are given to share with the world, because that's, that's the whole point, right? It, it, it's to figure out what those gifts are and not to hide them, but to, to share them to the greatest extent you possibly can. 
Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing and a key because then you can live just fulfilling what God put inside of you and you're bringing value to the world. It's a great thing. So during this journey, this 20 years, pick one or two things. What are one or two big life lessons you learned that we can help the listeners learn? You know, let's help them learn the easy way while you learn the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. To, to do that, I, 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 can, I can boil it down to the single most transformative year that I've had as a professional since I graduated college, which was 10 years ago this year, it was 2011. So I was by then, you know, this, this second environmental energy company that I, that I spoke of that I spent close to 15 years with, I, I had the um, great fortune and great opportunity to, to literally change jobs multiple times. So I started there in a communications role with my, you know, practically freshly minted English degree. Right. And then, you know, kind of moved on and up and I, you know, managed a department and then I moved over to customer service and worked in customer relations for a few years. And then I worked in human resources and, you know, I, I started in human resources as the head of training and development. And then that sort of evolved into you know, training, development, talent management, leadership development, executive coaching, recruiting, staffing, all of those sorts of things that are sort of bolt on, you know, related activities and focus areas to talent development. And then the last year that I was there, I was moved into more of a line role. So I was uh, VP of, of human resources for the largest division in the company, in their, in their North American company. And it was, it was an amazing opportunity for me to really stretch because I did not have a deep HR background, but I had a lot of the, you know, sort of the talent development, the communication and this sort of, you know, ability to kind of go throughout the business and learn, you know, learn a bit. And so yeah, I sp- and just, so you know, if some people are listening to the podcast and some are watching the video cast. I'm cracking up here because their <laughs> average HR VP is not like Claire. You're a well-grounded. I was going to ask you why you're laughing at me. So I'm glad you explained well, that. I mean, come on. I mean, the, most HR individuals are great people, <laughs> but they don't think like you. So I'm like trying to <laughs> reconcile this in my head. So continue with your story. But if right, anybody's so, watching and yeah. you're wondering why I'm busting up laughing, that's Results why. are not typical. Yeah. So... <laughs> So remind me to come back to that later, because I have to tell you that ever since I went into consulting, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute, every client I've ever had has had a similar sort of crack up moment where they stop me in the middle of the work that we're doing together. And, and they say, are you sure you've worked in HR? Because you don't talk like you come from HR. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right? It's like HR people. It's like, it's like, oh man, how do you even describe it? Like they have this theoretical quantum physics approach to emotional intelligence yeah. and life, a psychology degree with cognitive, yet it's so unable to be obtained. It's yeah. it's like this touchy feely froofy, and I don't get that feel from you. Yeah, well, you know, and it's and it's funny, and and like you, I mean, a lot of I deal with a lot of HR people even now, and they are really really good people. But you know, oh they, yeah, they, and I'm not they, no, 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 no. I'm no. just saying the way they're wired and think isn't like doesn't doesn't look and talk like that. <laughs> yeah, and and it's interesting because I you know I think the the stereotypical HR person and you know there's a reason that there are stereotypes right because they tend to be 
sort of indicative of, of what the majority True. is. <laughs> yeah. And so the majority of HR people have kind of the standing policy of not dealing with employees directly, right? They're very theoretical or they're very technically inclined or they're, you know, they're sort of the, the, the back office compensation analyst, but they don't actually talk to the customer. And so that whole They're human relations without the human disconnect. Uh, yeah. As a, as a colleague of mine once said, human resources is neither human nor resourceful. So yeah, there's, there's a bumper sticker for you, right? <laughs> Just pissed off a bunch of people, but you know, we love you. Seriously, hey, let me tell you, HR, we really love you. It, it's, you. <laughs> when you, you know, when you become a consultant, you look for opportunity, right? And I think the, that that sort of disconnect between HR and in and, and the business they are really in place to support is why I have a lot of different opportunities that I have, but we'll come back to that. So, all right. I didn't mean to disrail. No, 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 not at all. If you're watching this, that's why I was laughing. There's nothing going on other than that. I was going to ask I, you, but I didn't want to throw you off. So no, no, you can ask me anything. I'm totally open. I love this community and family. And also, if you're watching and you keep seeing my eyes go down, it's because that's where my screen is, but that's where my camera is. So I'm not doing anything else but focused on Claire. <laughs> I believe you. So, okay, so it's 10 years ago. It's 2011. I am now in this, this VP of HR role. I'm traveling all the time. I'm, you know, working like crazy. I have this awesome, awesome team. It's spread throughout the country. And I'm literally, I, you know, I bought one of those rolling sort of like file cabinets basically, right? Because I was never in my corporate office more than one week at a time. I was constantly on the road, <clears throat> excuse me. And it was the spring of 2011 and I'm on the road <laughs> again. And I'm, I'm getting this sort of weird, like flurry in my heart. Like this, just this sort of weird, like heart, not quite a palpitation, but it was more like a, like a big thud, like, oh my gosh, like you're anxious about something, but it would happen once and it wouldn't happen again for a couple of minutes. And I thought, well, that's strange, whatever, go about my business, do what I'm doing, you know, go home. And I'm like, the old Claire would have just said, well, I was nervous about something or it was because I was traveling and I was rushing or whatever and not done anything with it for whatever reason. And I think we can thank God for this one. I decided not to ignore it. And I went to my doctor and that doctor led to a referral to a specialist and another specialist, and a bunch of tests. And long story short, I got a call on good Friday of that year. And I was home because we actually had that as a holiday from my doctor with a cancer diagnosis. And so it was one of those things where like anybody who has gone through cancer likely has this, this same sort of feeling. It's like it permanently divides your life into before and after like permanently. Right. And so I, I had to, I had to deal with that obviously. And, you know, my first thought was I've got too much going on to even deal with this. But that of course was a defense mechanism because, you know, when you get a cancer diagnosis, there's all this other stuff that comes up. There's for me anyway, there was surgery and there was recovery and there was follow-up treatment and there's tests all the time and blood work and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and um, I was gonna, if you don't mind, that's what I was going to ask you. Was it a mass or a lymph system? What kind of cancer was it? So it actually was thyroid cancer. And it was, and what was amazing was a lot of people that get thyroid cancer don't have any symptoms at all. 
The thyroid is like one of the smallest glands in your body. It looks like a little butterfly and it controls so much of your bodily functions. And so they never quite made the direct connection because what, what's unfortunate about thyroid cancer is there's, there's four different types of thyroid cancer. Ironically, my mom had had thyroid cancer 15 years prior to me, but it was a different type. So they don't know that it's hereditary necessarily. They don't really know what causes it. And because it's not one of your big cancers, there isn't as much research and research dollars devoted to really kind of figuring out the cause so we can prevent it. But, uh, but anyway, so that, so that led to, we had to remove the thyroid, not we, <laughs> surgeon, I didn't, you know, just numb myself up and go in there and get it. But, you know, found a, found a fantastic surgeon, you know, and had the surgery, took a month off to, you know, to, to sort of recover. And what was really interesting about that, you know, I, I, I say to people that 2011 was the most difficult year of my life. It also happened to be the best. And people look at me sideways and go, how can having cancer be a great experience? And it's like, well, it's not so much the, the experience of cancer. I mean, I wouldn't want to have to go through it again, but what it forced me to realize when I took that month off you know, the first couple of days after you get home from surgery, it's like, all you can think about is just sort of getting, getting better, right? You're sore. I mean, I was laid out flat on a steel operating table for like four hours. Like your, your back kind of suffers from like, I couldn't, I can't even describe to you how bad my back hurt even more so than my, than my neck. Anybody who's had a lay still for an extended period of time, they know that is it's, if you've never had it, you're like, what are they talking about? But it's one of the most excruciatingly painful things you can endure. It's, it's I've it's had amazing. much pain in my life, but having to lay still for an extended period was one of the truly most painful things I've ever encountered. And, and on a, you know, it's not a forgiving surface, right? It's not like they give you like a mattress to lay on. Like you're, you're just a, you're just sort of a, you know, like you're, you're science chem lab, right? Like you're, you're sort of the, the, the patient or whatever. And I remember that first night when I finally got home, I only stayed in the hospital one night. And you don't really sleep in the hospital. So I learned that fast. And that first night that I got home, I figured I'd be so exhausted. I would just sleep. I was, I was up all night because my back hurt so bad. I couldn't lay flat. So then I would get up and just walk around because it was the only thing that would relieve the pain. But as I stood up, it would bring more weight toward my neck, which was where all the sutures were. So that was causing that pain. So literally like that first night was just, was just agony because you can't, you can't get comfortable. There's no position where you can rest. But, you know, get, getting past those first couple of bumpy days where, you know, that the, the pain was its sharpest or whatever, I had to take off work f- for a month. And like I said, I had an amazing team. So I, you know, when, when I knew I had to be out, I got them together. I told them what was going on. I delegated everything and they were absolute champions and, you know, never missed a beat, never dropped a ball, nothing. And so it enabled me literally not to look at email for the first three weeks that I was off, which was unheard of for me because I had, been, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a nice, right. That's a, that's a vacation right there. A total vacation from everything. Like I didn't, I didn't check voicemails. I didn't look at emails at all and really just got to focus on my recovery and a group of friends at work got together and, uh, and bought me a Kindle. And the Kindle, for any of you who have a Kindle, it comes preloaded with the Bible, at least mine did. And I thought, you know what? I'm a lifelong Catholic and I've never read the Bible from, from beginning to end. 
And so my morning routine became, you know, getting up at a, at a decent hour and I'm not a morning person, but for, for whatever reason, during these four weeks, I was able to get up, you know, relatively early, have some breakfast, get a big old cup of coffee and go sit in my, I had a sunroom at the time, sit in my sunroom in my comfortable chair with my feet up and read the Bible. And that alone is just such an amazing, obviously it's a spiritual experience, but it's such an amazing reflective opportunity. You don't have to be Catholic to read the Bible. You don't have to be Christian even to read the Bible, but just like just reading it from, from start to finish. I have since read it, I think three times now. And nice. not because I'm looking for a pride. record. Every, every time, time you get something book. else out of it, it yep. really, yeah. And, and, and what was, what was great about the Kindle is you can also underline passages. I mean, I have a hard copy Bible that I read now and like, I would never think to like mark it up. Right. But a Kindle, <laughs> yeah, like you can sort of like sacrilegious, like, right? Yeah. Like there's no, there's no way. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I would, I would, I would read the Bible a little bit every morning, you know, in, in, in journal or, or whatever else I did. But what was amazing, what, what was also amazing about that time period was I spent a lot of time in the quiet, right? Just sort of reflecting. The other thing that happens when you get a cancer diagnosis is it really does wake you up to the, the fact that life is very short. Now, let me end any suspense. I am completely cancer free now. So this is not where this story is headed. But you know, the, the point of that is when you get a cancer diagnosis, it really does make you rethink and, and kind of check where you are in your life. And I finally realized in that quiet that up to that point, I had been dodging this nagging question that had been in the back of my mind. And the question was, are you doing what you're passionate about? And because I finally couldn't unrun, un, uh, outrun that voice, I had to be honest with myself and answer, that no, I was not doing what I was passionate about. The, the role that I had, you know, was in at that time where it was soup to nuts HR and traveling all the time, albeit overseeing an amazing team of just really, really amazing people. The work that I specifically was doing was not, you know, in the, in the track that I was on, which was an executive track, was not what I was passionate about. And something happens when you finally not just listen to that voice, but answer it. You have to do something with that information, right? I couldn't, now that I had said out loud, no, I am not where I really want to be. I had to make a choice and I had to do something different. So I'll pause there for a second because I feel like I've I talked for 15 minutes straight. <laughs> oh, no, I'm tracking with you. And I think our listeners are too. That's beautiful if you don't listen to that nagging voice it starts to kill you like not you know you just start to deteriorate because when you know yeah. what to do and we don't do it we're not obedient we just start to get a lot of people suffer from depression and that's yeah. a big cause of it people knowing what they need to do and they don't follow it but before i will obviously continue in their story but i do want to just explain again because we have so many different cultures and so many different worldviews. if you're not familiar with the bible the bible is 66 books divided into the old testament and new testament two-thirds is the old testament one-third is the new testament the dividing line is jesus christ so when you're reading the bible the old testament is all the stories in history before jesus 
and the new testament is from jesus forward bringing us to the future in revelation so that's kind of the bible and so what claire did she went cover to cover through it so she took the whole journey but if you want to know jesus and 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 start understanding it i'd actually recommend starting the new testament because mm. it's a little bit shorter and it's a quicker <laughs> journey because if you start yeah. off in genesis it's beautiful but then you get into Leviticus, you're reading about sacrifice and oh my it, gosh, it all is and who, and who and who begot whom and begat whom and, and yeah, there, there's Isaac some of that Isaac, you gotta skip. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, right. So what I'm saying is, if you yeah. start in the New Testament, cover to cover, I've never seen a contradiction in the Bible. I've never seen anything but truth. There might be things I don't understand because my ignorance, but as I study more, it's a living book and it just starts revealing. God starts revealing Himself to you. And all truth comes from God. It all works. And anytime, just like Claire, anytime I'm searching for something in my life, I just start reading and it's there. So I'm with Claire. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. And you're talking about how are I, am I doing what I'm passionate about? So yeah. take us from there, Pam. I mean, Pam, <laughs> Claire. Yeah, no, no worries. You know, and, and just to, just a note about that. I mean, the, the, the key, at least for me, if I, if I can offer a recommendation, if you do decide to sit down and, and read the Bible, it's not about how quickly you get through it. And you don't even have to yes. read it cover It's to not cover. like a normal book. Take it, your time. It's, it's not. And, and what I decided, you know, at first it was like, when I had it on the Kindle, <laughs> the great thing about the Kindle is it shows you at the bottom, sort of the, the running tally, right? It tells you how many pages are left and you know what percentage of the book and so for a while i would catch myself like okay i'm going to read like you know 2% today which is a, which is a lot for such a long book right and then i realized it was like i'm not reading this to hit some sort of a daily quota and if i found that i was not being fully present when i was reading that day that's when i would stop and there you know there are some days where i got so pulled in because that's where God wanted me to be at that moment, right? That I, you know, next time I would look up, it was an, it was an hour that had gone by. And other days, I literally would spend two minutes and find my mind wandering. And so I would put it down and, you know, and, and go back to it later or the next day or, or what have you. So, you know, it, it, that's my biggest recommendation is to, is to read it with intention and to read it with an open mind and an open heart. You know, because it's not, it's not that the answers are in the pages per, per se. It's, it's the, the, the sort of the dialogue that you open up with God by putting yourself in those pages, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does to me. And if you don't, like, I agree with that, the dialogue. Before I read, I pray. And yeah. I'll talk to God. Praying is just talking to God. And then when I read, that's kind of how God talks to us in this generation, you know? And so we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and dwells us and leads us. And then you have the written word. I thank God we have, because in the old days, they didn't have that. Right. <laughs> we got an instruction book right in front of us, right? That's right. So you're reading your instruction book and where does God bring you, Claire? So it, it was, I, I truly think because that became my daily sort of practice, that it wasn't just in reading those pages, but it was the place that it kind of got me to mentally and, and emotionally and certainly spiritually that I was able, you know, to, to sort of let that voice catch up with me. So now, you know, so now I know that I'm not doing what I'm passionate about, which deep down I had known, 
but now I have, I have admitted it. So I spent the rest of that time off. And like I said, I had, I had four weeks to, to sort of devote to my, my recovery. And I really kind of reflected on, okay, if the answer is no, if what I'm doing and where I am right now and the direction that I'm headed are, are not fulfilling me, what would, and I didn't have one very clear, very distinct answer. And therefore, you know, here's the, here's the business plan and here's kind of the schedule. It was really more a matter of, you know, the, the role that I had had previous to, you know, that, that sort of line role where I was accountable for the upbringing, if you will, of the talent and leadership at the company was really where my heart was. And I learned long ago, and my mom always reinforced this, that you never go backwards. You always keep moving forward. So I knew that the answer was not to go back to work and revert to a previous role. Not because it was going to be a demotion. That was also a VP level. That wasn't it. But it was about this, you know, if this truly is a journey and part of it is the self-discovery and start of it, and part of it is, is the expression of what you, you know, what you discover, then I knew I couldn't go back. I had to go forward. And so I went back to work and I had a very open, honest discussion with my boss. And I said, you know, this is, this is kind of what I'm, where I'm feeling, where I'm, where I'm thinking. And I, I want to take my shot. And to do that, we need to part ways. And I, and I have to back up for a second because it wasn't as, it wasn't, a, you know, a, simply a matter of saying, okay, am I doing what I'm passionate about? No, check that box. If that's not what it is, what is, okay, here's my list, check that box and now go have a conversation with my boss, right? There is this time in the middle, we talked a little while ago about self-doubt. And here is where I think everybody's going to relate to this, to this portion because a lot of people, if they stop out running that voice, will get to that same answer that no, they are not currently doing what they're passionate about. And they may even get to that point where they start to make a list of, you know, what are, what are the things that do deeply fulfill me? When was the last time that I was totally like in a zone doing whatever it was I was working on and was so embedded and so in, you know, in the moment and in my genius zone and all those sorts of things, what were some of the things I was doing? And a lot of people even get to that step and make that list, but here's where they get tripped up. There is this enemy and it comes in the form of two words that stop many of us from taking that list and taking that answer and then going after what we're passionate about. And those two words are, if only, and they stacked up for me as well as they stack up for a lot of people. Right? So I knew the answer to, am I doing what I'm passionate about was no. I knew that I now had this list of things that I could focus on, didn't quite know the how yet or the where, but I knew that these were some of the things that, that um, sort of energized me and fueled me. And that's when the if onlys crept in. And the if onlys for me were things like, if only I had more experience, if only I had more money saved, if only I didn't still have cancer treatments ahead of me, if only... I had, you know, I, I, I kind of knew that I was going to go out on my own. I just didn't know what the form was. So one of those, if only, if only's became, if only I had 
a list of clients that I could start to call on tomorrow waiting for me, right? If only I didn't have to go through this, you know, this and that. So the if onlys pile up very quickly. And again, you have a choice, right? You have all of these if onlys that stand between you and actually jumping in with both feet to go after what you're passionate about. And the choice for me was very simple. I decided to F the if. If you're truly going to break through those barriers between where you're standing now and where God truly wants you to be sharing the gifts he gave you and he never intended for you to keep them in a drawer or on a shelf or under a basket, right? As the saying goes, that, that you have to break through those barriers of, of if, if onlys. And I think what most people will find is that the biggest barriers we place between where we are and where we truly are meant to be are artificial and they're placed there ourselves by ourselves. I agree 1000%, 1000%. There's this internal like self-destruct mechanism in some of us. There's this internal fear in some of us. There's all different reasons, but at the end of the day, like Claire's saying, we got to get rid of that if only and pull the trigger. You know, there, there's, a, there's a reason that the expression, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, has the devil in it, right? If we really want to, if we really want to get to that, to that level of, of the forces of good versus evil. But, uh, you know, so many people say that it's like, well, but I know what I have and I know what's bad about it. And I've been able to quantify it. Therefore, I've gotten to a point where I know how to cope. You were not put on this earth to cope. You were put on this earth to figure out what your light is and to share it with the world. It is literally that simple. It's literally that simple. And so when I, you know, I, I, if you go back to kind of this, this analogy of the checklist, I had my no, right? No, that I was not doing what I was passionate about. I had this sort of, this, this list of things that I could, you know, if, if only I could, if only I could find somebody to pay me to do these types of things, I think I would be happy because they're, they're more squarely within my, my genius zone and my God-given strengths, right? I had knocked down that pile of if onlys and I said, here's the thing. And it's interesting now that this is going to, this is going to come back full circle. I said to myself, if I wait, if I don't take my shot now and I wait, I'm going to blink and it's going to be 10 years down the road. That's why I'm smirking because now it is 10 years since I said that it's going to be 10 years down the road and I will have missed my shot. And, you know, you, you, there were all these studies about people on their deathbeds, right? And these interviews of people and what's your biggest regret. And it's not the things they did. It's the things that they didn't do. It's the things that they talked themselves out of trying. It's the yep. shots they didn't take. Right. Yep. hundred percent of the people like exactly what you said. It's the regret is what they didn't do or didn't try. Yeah. And, and how ironic is it, right? That most of us spend our, spend our lives regretting the things we did. And when we're on our deathbed, the only thing we're going to regret is the things we didn't do. And so I, you know, I knew for me, it was like, truly, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? 
like if I if I leave this comfortable nest, this corporate job, this executive track, you know, blah, 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 and I go out on my own without a real plan, without a roster of clients all lined up and at the ready, without a, you know, a real clear picture of exactly what I wanted to do, what I wanted to offer, what it looked like and who it was for and all of that stuff. What's the worst that could happen? Worst that could happen is I fall flat on my face and I fail. And you know what? That's not the end of the road. So then I find a different opportunity or I go into another full-time position. It, like it, when you when you finally put the hard edges around what that worst possible outcome could be of the decision that you're weighing, you're going to find that most of them are not life and death decisions. I knew I was not a brain surgeon. I knew that if I made a mistake in this journey to go from corporate cocoon to going into business and building a business from scratch for myself, centered on things that I loved doing and I wanted to do for people because I knew it would help them. The worst things that could happen were not really that bad and they were not things I couldn't come back from. So what was holding me back? And the answer was absolutely nothing. That's awesome. And now I'm getting like geeky and excited <laughs> because I'm looking at Claire and behind her, it says Claire Chandler, architect of profitable swagger. And she has a picture of a woman and there's a shadow with a superhero. And if you ever looked at our art cover for the Remarkable People podcast, it's very similar because to us, it's all of us. God has put greatness in us through him. And we're all that superhero inside. So Claire, for you, where are you today? And what's that superhero mean to you? Oh, I love that. So where I am today. So it's, it's, it's literally 10 years now, nine and a half. I didn't, I didn't fully sever ties with, with, with the company until the fall of 2011. And, and by the way, I still have such deep, deep love for the company. And, and we had a, a very amicable separation. You know, like I said, I spent close to 15 years there and, and, you know, built up a, a lot of, a lot of equity <laughs> so that when I came to them and said, this is no longer what I'm after. And, you know, I'm going to go take my shot. I, I was just overwhelmed by the support. Um, and they sound like a great company. You can plug their name if you want to give them a little free advertising. I'm so, fine okay. So the, so the company is, is Suez. It was called United Water at the time. It is now Suez. It is a, it's a French owned company. They have a, a brand new CEO who is not new to the company. In fact, she is a, a very good friend of mine. I love her dearly. I've always considered her a mentor and as good of a company as it's always been, it's going to be just even more amazing under her leadership. So I'm, I'm super excited for, for their future. So yeah, so it was, so 10 years ago, nine and a half years ago, you know, I'm leaving on a Friday. I've got my box of my picture frames and, you know, my, I think I left my plant there cause I would have killed it anyway, but you know, <laughs> like my, my desk lamp and my, you know, my little tchotchkes and things like that, knickknacks or, or how, how do we translate that? I realize now we've got a global audience. So little decorations, are, little decorations. There you go. <laughs> little characters and little, you know, inspirational pictures on the wall and all that stuff. And uh, so I left there on a Friday and uh, went out to dinner with uh, several of my, of my coworkers, you know, and had a great all time. And uh, Monday morning, like I said earlier, I'm not a morning person. And Monday morning, didn't set an alarm clock. And 
it wasn't even 7 a.m. And before my second eye was open, I just burst into this huge grin. And I knew that's where that I, you know, that I'd made the right decision. And about an hour later, the phone rings and it's my mom. And she's checking on me because she goes, how are you feeling? Right. Because (laughs) honestly, we didn't know. She didn't know. And I didn't know whether I was going to wake up in this huge, massive puddle of deep regret and go, oh, my God, what did I just do? Right. And so, you know, it's that told me so much about the journey I was now on, that it was the right path. Was it completely paved? No. Did I, did I know what the horizon was at the time? No. And, and let me tell you something else. 10 years later, I, I have a very good sense of the horizon, but it's not a story I ever intend to finish. You know what I mean? Like it's still, you asked me way earlier, you know, at any point along the way, did I have a, did I have a plan or did I just sort of open myself up to the journey? I have much more of a plan now in terms of how to fulfill different goals I have for myself and how I share what I do with, you know, with, with my clients and the leaders that I work with and all of that, but it's constantly evolving. You know, that's the, that's the great thing about the entrepreneurial journey, the leadership journey, just the journey of life in general is it's constantly evolving and you have the opportunity to, you know, to improve upon it, to enhance it, to pivot, to completely change course, you know, and it's, it, it's not a good standard business practice to change your mind every day, certainly, but being open to the possibility that you could continue to play at a bigger and bigger level, right? And it's not about making more and more money. You know, I, I said to people from the beginning, and I say this now, I did not go out on my own to become a multimillionaire. If it happens, it happens. And I, and I will feel, you know, it's extremely blessed, but that's not why I'm on this journey. I'm on this journey because this is the avenue through which I truly believe I can live my fullest life, play full out and really share my, you know, my unique gifts with the world. Yeah. And, and once again, you're spot on money doesn't make you joy filled and have contentment. Money can make you happy. I mean, I can get a new car. It makes me happy. I can get a new jacket. It makes me happy. <laughs> it's not going to last that long, but right. the people I know who are struggling financially or people I know who are multimillionaires, they're exactly what you said. They're fulfilled and have joy and peace because of God and they're living their passion, not because That's of the right. amount of money they have in their wallet or bank account. So yeah, so cool. So now you're turning and growing and the path is unwinding. And what are you doing today? Like what, what is Claire doing? Where are you today and how can we help you? Yeah, I love it. So my... The, 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 current, the, the current sort of turn in the path, right? And there's no real sharp turns on my, my path. It's sort of a winding, very enjoyable path. My, my, my niche, what I focus on is helping new leaders truly succeed in their roles. There's this, this really scary statistic. So McKinsey and company, if you're familiar with them, they're a very 
talented consulting firm and they do all sorts of studies and they do a lot of management consulting and, you know, fortune 100 companies and all of that. And they found that at least 50% of new leaders fail within 18 months. And it's not confined to leaders who are leading for the first time, but any new leader who is stepping into a, to a role has at least a 50% chance of failing. And, you know, you, you, you go back to our, our sort of tongue in cheek conversation about traditional HR, you know, and, and again, I have deep love for, for folks who, who pursue HR as their, as their field of, you know, of work, but there typically is a disconnect between HR and the business that they support. And, you know, HR is tasked with finding leaders, deploying leaders, you know, and, and sort of filling leadership vacancies. And the big piece that's missing is how they prepare leaders. And it's not just confined to HR. HR does not have sole accountability for why this isn't happening. But the, you know, this, this same McKinsey study found that 75% of leaders said that they felt unprepared for their new role. Why is that? Well, you know, it, there's so much at stake when a leader has to come into an organization or a division or a team and expect to not just pick up where their predecessor left off and continue momentum, but actually build upon that success and, you know, bring that project or company or team or division to a higher level of performance. And there are certain sort of calculations that a company makes when they place a new leader. You know, they say, okay, well, they're, they're, they're going to sink or swim, right? We're going to throw them in the deep end. They're going to sink or swim. They're going to make it or not. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to grow. And if they don't, you know, they don't make it, we'll, we'll just have to find something else. It, it doesn't need to be that way. And part of the problem is, you know, I had this conversation with a new leader just yesterday and I said, you know, if, if your head of HR, your head of talent knew some of the things you were telling me in terms of what you felt like you didn't get from HR in terms of onboarding or in terms of support or in terms of, you know, just sort of some, some guidance on how to step into that leadership role the right way, right? What are the conversations you need to be having? What are some of the decisions you need to make? What are some of the, you know, the things that you have to have in place? I said, what would that do for you if, you know, we, we sort of gave that feedback to your head of talent? He said, it wouldn't make a difference. And I said, why is that? And he said, because they have other priorities and they are already fully engaged in all the other work that they have to do in HR. And it's not like they've got this, you know, this, this huge organization in HR where they have the, the bandwidth to devote to doing this the right way. And I thought that was very interesting. And like I said earlier, you know, some of the sort of shortfalls or, or personality quirks that we, you know, that we sort of mock in, in traditional HR, again, is an opportunity for somebody like me, because that's what I specialize in. So I come into a company and I help that new leader flatten their ramp to full A-level performance, severely decrease the likelihood or the chance that they're going to fail and really help them to, to, to get to full productivity in a much shorter period of time. 
And at the organizational level, you know, part of that head of talent role is to make sure that they've made the right choice to begin with, right? So, and I know this because I've had this role in the past. You have this kind of cheat sheet or shortlist or, you know, talent radar of people with strong potential that you, that you try to cultivate and you try to nurture so that when that next leadership role becomes available in your company, you go to that list, you don't go to the wider organization and you say, okay, which of these people is the right person to put into that role? And a lot of times the heads of talent don't have all the data that they need to make the best decision. And so what they are worried about is, did we make the right decision and how can we tell? And you don't want to wait 18 months to see whether that leader, you know, succeeds or fails to know if you've made the right, the right choice. So at an organizational level, in addition to working with those leaders on, you know, getting really accelerated on that ramp to full productivity for themselves and their team, I also work with those heads of talent to really look at their talent pipeline and get into a much, much more comfortable and confident place in terms of deploying the right leaders into the right roles at the right time. Yeah, and that's absolutely crucial for anyone who hasn't worked in corporate America. I mean, this is an issue from the small business to the medium to the large, but the larger you get developing that pipeline, helping people with continuing education, leadership development, it's all crucial. So let me ask you this, Claire. We have people, again, from all over the world, all different statuses in life, but we have a lot of business owners listening now. You have a quick maybe a little checklist or starter program that you could share with them to, Hey, this is what you need to be looking to be grooming and, and doing to help yourself develop and find better leaders. Absolutely. The, the easiest thing for them to do, especially for the business owners and business leaders, you know, I've got this term profitable swagger behind me. If you go to profitableswagger.com, there is an assessment. It takes about seven minutes to complete. And it's, uh, it's more like a questionnaire. Take the time to go through that. Literally, it takes seven minutes. And it will uh, ask you some very pointed and very valuable questions that give you, a, uh, you know, an opportunity to kind of self-evaluate where you are in terms of your business and in terms of, of the, the degree to which you are leading and living and running your business with what I call profitable swagger. So that's kind of the first point is, is to go to that. But now let me explain what that means. So if you go to my LinkedIn profile, there's a, there's sort of a story in my, in my top summary section that kind of explains how this, this concept of swagger came about, but really what, what swagger means in business is being able to lead like you mean it, lead with confidence. There's a reason that the image behind me is, uh, is of, you know, a, a, a professional woman who casts a superhero shadow against the wall. This is not fake it until you make it. This is not about putting on the mantle of leadership and seeing it as a role that you have to play. Leadership is a responsibility and it is really important to get it right, not just for the business, but for the people that are trying to follow you. And so the concept of swagger is where you get to a place where you are extremely confident as a leader in where you are trying to get to as a business and that you know the steps to get there and that you also know that you're not alone. If you go back to this concept of, you know, my, my A-team, right? The, the childhood friends that I grew up with and are still 
extremely close with today. Knowing that they were always, you know, within within a, an arm's length or a, or a shout out of being by my side, gave me the confidence and the swagger to walk up and down the street in Plainfield, you know, with, without fear, right? And it's the same thing with leaders. If you know where you're going, you know at least some sense of how to get there, and you know that you're not alone. You walk with swagger. Where profitable comes in is the ability to replicate that confidence over an extended period of time. That's where that swagger, that leading with intention, that leading with purpose and leading in such a way that people can't help but follow you is what helps companies become much more profitable over the long term. So that's sort of the explanation behind profitable swagger. That's fantastic. And I urge anyone out there who has a business, check out Claire's website. Again, I'll put in the show notes take that seven minute test, seven minutes for free to get so much value out of it. Check it out, take the test and see where it leads. This is just one step you need to take and then Claire can share her wisdom with you. Absolutely. Yeah, now Claire, we've gone through your past. You've brought us up to the present before we kind of wrap things together and put a bow on it. Is there anything we missed that you wanna discuss? You know, it, it, it sort of uh, begs the question, what's the future, right? So, so I'll just kind of speak to that real, real quickly. I mean, um, yeah, that's where we're going. I just want to make sure we didn't miss anything in the past. Yeah, so we, sure, sure, sure. We have the past, I, we have the present, and where is Claire going and how can we help you get there? Yeah, I love it. So, you know, it, it, again, I don't have such a concrete, you know, step-by-step plan because I have, you know, I found in the past, what's, what's the saying, right? If you want to make God laugh, you make plans, right? Yeah, you show them that. <laughs> Brandon Novak, he was on our our podcast from the Jackass series. And that's yeah. the first time I ever heard that. He said, anytime I want to make God laugh, I'm giving my plan. <laughs> and I never heard that, but oh, it's so true. Yeah. You know what, though? Now that you said that, it reminds me of, a, 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 of another quick sort of experience from my past I want to share. So years ago, and it was probably, it was after college, but sort of early days. So this has to be at least 15, maybe 20 years ago. I was at a, an extremely down point in my life. And again, I don't thank God, I don't suffer from depression, but we all have dips, right? We all have times when the self-doubt outpaces the, the reaffirming talk. When you know the, the mistakes we've made or the things that we've tripped over, they are harder to get up from. And it was one of those times where that's how I was feeling. And I decided that night, it's, it's, it, it's funny and yet so fitting how it always comes back to God. So I decided that night to go to mass with my parents. And I, you know, I was, I was out of the house by then, but decided to go to mass with them. And I think it was, I feel like it was Easter week. So it might've been Holy Thursday or something. And there was, you know, a, a time toward the end of the mass where you get some, some quiet time to pray and reflect and I was, and I was kneeling and I was praying to God and I was saying, help me figure this out because I feel like beaten down and I feel lost and I don't know what to do. And so clearly, so clearly, I didn't hear a voice, but I got the message from God that said, I have a plan for you. And I know a lot of people say that you know, to others, right? They say, God has a plan for you. But I so clearly 
I'll use air quotes, heard him. But that message, I have a plan for you, was so clear. And I went from being close to tears, praying to him, to breaking out in the biggest smile because I thought, well, yeah, of course he does. He's got the plan. I don't, I don't need the plan. He has the plan. I just have to be open to it. And it's one of those, I keep using the word transformative and I don't mean to overuse it, but it's one of those moments in my life that just reminded me I'm not alone. Right. And it's, and it's one of the ways that gives me swagger. It is one of the ways that I am reminded that I don't have to know what's around every corner because he does. I don't have to have a completely developed and fleshed out plan because he does. I just have to be open and humble enough to, to let him reveal it to me. It's, it, you know, and I, and I keep saying it's that simple, but it is that simple. Yeah, and it is. And the, our part is what? To sit down and spend time with our daddy, to talk to God, to listen yeah. to him reply, to read our Bible, to go to mass. And when and Claire says mass, that some people consider church or worship right. again, service. Just yep. yep. Communing with God. So man, thank you so much, Claire. It's I'm getting actually a little emotional here. It's just to hear you listening to asking God for help and listening and obeying and then finding that peace. I mean, there's been times in my life where I know I literally thought I was going to die from stress. And I remember being physically, you know, there's a verses in the Bible says go into thy closet and pray. I physically yeah. climbed into my closet, was on the floor weeping and like a valve, like, I don't know if you've ever seen water just whoosh, flush yeah. through a pipe. God yeah. answered prayer in my heart. It was like turning a valve and all the stress and all the pain, everything just went away. And I had peace. And if you don't know God, like Claire's story, my story, man, seek him out. Ask him, say, God, if you're real, show me, you know, read your Bible again, start in the New Testament, make your life a little easier. And then start <laughs> yeah, in don't John. Don't start with Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Start in John specifically and just yeah. see where he goes and see where he takes you because he loves you and he wants to help you. But like Claire said, the transformative moments in her life, revolutionary, right? She's with yeah. God. What do you yeah. expect to happen, right? It's so, you know, it's so simple. And, and you know, it, God would never say, well, duh, Claire. But, but, but basically, he sort of puts that, you know, that energy into your heart and you go, the solution was so simple. And the, and the thing that, you know, delayed me understanding the solution was thinking I had to figure it out on my own. Right. And it's, and it's, wow, it's kind of funny that I just said that out loud. It's sort of the same message that I try to get across to leaders. It's like, the fastest path to failure is, is thinking that you have to figure out the path to success all by yourself and you, and you don't. And I'm not at all putting myself on the same level as God. So please let me just clarify that. But the, but that concept of we were not meant to walk the earth alone. We were not meant to figure it all out ourselves. We have to be open to, you know, the, the, the presence of others, the presence of God, you know, in the, in the, in the fact that again, really that the point in life is to figure out what it is you're supposed to share. What is that inner light? And then go and share it. Amen. Amen. And you, you mentioned something earlier that touches on, you know, my a nerve inside of me because, you know, God makes perfect truth and Satan always perverts that truth. Mm. So you, you mentioned the very popular phrase, fake it till you make it. 
when yeah. I hear that, I want to punch people in the face, not you. And right. I wasn't mad no, at you. No, I know, no, no. <laughs> because the truth yeah. is commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts will be established. Yeah. That means, okay, be positive, keep saying the truth, but be realistic and then go work and, and do your best. And then God will develop it. Commit your works unto the Lord and thy thoughts will be established. It renews the mind. That That's doesn't right. mean fake it till you make it like, oh yeah, I'm the greatest marker in the world. I'm going to go out there. Let me grow your business. And then you tank their business or waste millions of dollars because you're an idiot. So there's a big <laughs> difference between the biblical yeah. commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established and the lie from Satan, fake it till you make it. If somebody tells Absolutely. you fake it till you make it, they're either misspeaking or they're an idiot and run. So that, and, and I just want to throw that out there. No, you're you're 100 right, and that and it that saying frustrates me too. And I don't know if you saw my face when I said it before, because it's like there there are a lot of leaders, quote unquote, that are leaders in name only who think I don't have all the answers figured out yet, but I can admit that to my team. So I'm just going to go through the motions until it starts to make sense to me. That is a recipe for disaster, right? The way that you succeed in life, in leadership, in anything that you're doing is be authentic, right? You're, you're not gonna know everything. The best leaders are not the charlatans. They're the ones that are truly authentic to themselves, right? I, I talked about how, you know, in high school, even though I loved high school, I was still kind of, you know, wearing the uniform and college was where I really had this opportunity to sort of break out and embrace my unique goofiness. Leadership or whatever role that you are in is not a role that you play. You're not an actor. You're not on Broadway. You're not in the movies. I mean, if you are and you're listening to this, I'm extremely humbled that you, you know, you you stayed with us for this long because that's <laughs> awesome, right? But like leadership is not a is not a coat that you put on. It's a it's a deep responsibility you have to take care of the people that are trying to follow you. And the only way to do that, the only way that people are going to genuinely follow your lead is if you're genuine to them. Not if you're, if you're faking it or trying to be something that you're not. Yeah. And I think history that, you know, obviously you and I are believers. So the Bible, but I mean, even if someone right now, if you, if you don't, you know, like, oh, I'm not sure about this God thing or this Bible, look at history in America, great leaders that were recorded for changing the country, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Ronald Reagan, overseas, Winston Churchill. These aren't people that were necessarily well-liked, but they held to their convictions and they did what was right and they changed the course of the world for God. I mean, right. nobody liked Churchill and then <laughs> Hitler didn't like that Churchill. Guy. That was the, whoa, <laughs> Hitler didn't like Churchill and that was the magic, right? Yeah. So he held to his convictions and that's what we have to be, just like Claire said. So Claire, thank you so much for being on the show today. We went through your past, your present, where you're going in the future. Any point, did we miss anything? Is there anything else you want to share with our audience? Any parting thoughts or words of wisdom? Just one other thing to, to get in touch with me. If, if, if you're not a business owner or leader, or you just want some other information or, or resources, or want to reach out to me and, and say hello, or even set up a time to, to talk, no strings, go to clairechandler.net. That's my main website. You can learn a little bit more about me and uh, there's some other free resources on there that, uh, that might interest you. So, so not trying to sell you anything at all. Just want to, uh, to give you another way to, to stay connected, but yeah, it, thank you for this. This, this has been such a unique 
amazing conversation with you. And I hope your listeners get a lot out of it. And I hope that they do reach out to people around them, whether it's you or me, or just, you know, people that are, that are part of their community, because we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to try to walk through this life, you know, w- without the help of others. So, you know, le- lean on each other. Cause that's what it's all about. Yeah. I, I agree. And I'm so thankful we became, we got to meet each other and we're becoming friends, Claire. I hope it continues. Absolutely. And like Claire said, man is not meant to be alone. That's just not man meaning male. It's mankind humans. That's right. So, reach out to Claire. I'm going to put all our contact info in the show notes, reach out to me if you need help. And then let's just grow together for Christ, help each other grow, make the world a better place. We can even hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But uh, thank you, Claire, for being here today. You truly are a remarkable woman. As a listener, again, check out the show notes, hang out for another couple minutes. We're gonna give you a couple special offers and we'll see you. We're going to see you next week when I don't punch my mic. (laughs) Ciao. Thanks, David. Bye. Was that not a remarkable episode? We had God. We had family. We had love. We had country. We had hard work. We even had the A-team. Dun, dun, dun. No, seriously, thank you, Claire, for a remarkable episode. And thank you for listening. We love you. We hope this episode helped. And as a special offer, don't forget to go to Claire's website. The link's in the show notes. Go get your personalized score. Reach out to Claire if you need help. And I hope, I hope this just helps you as a catalyst to grow and to unleash that superpower inside of you. Like our logo has the normal everyday people with the remarkable heroes inside of us all that God created. Like Claire's logo has, if you're watching this, the remarkable human inside of what seems like the everyday that's you. God made you special. There's nobody else like you. There's nobody that has your sets of gifts and ability and skills and experiences and hardships. The whole package is only you. And even up until this point, if you never understood, there's a reason why God never causes bad things, but sometimes he allows it because he refines us and he grows us. And sometimes like in Job, he just lets Satan have his way with us to prove how good he is, how loving he is, and how much he loves you and how special you are. He knows you won't break or crumble. So take the knowledge that Claire shared with us. Take the abilities and gifts God's given you. Don't just listen to this podcast, but go do it, repeat it, and have a great life. I'm David Pasqualone. Thanks for watching. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week. Ciao. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life.